Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. I hope that you're encouraged by the title of today's message. Some may be more encouraged than others. (laughs) It's okay to be peculiar. It's biblical. We're going to look at this passage because we're making our way through now the book of 1 Peter. Our elders preached through, taught through the book of 2 Peter while Joy and I were on sabbatical. So we kind of reversed the order a little bit. And it's fun for me because I was able to listen to those messages after I returned and to see how they dovetail. I don't think it matters so much that we got them a little bit out of order. The teaching is still going to be real solid, and I'm grateful for the elders for doing such a good job in my absence. So, be peculiar. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 14. We're going to camp out mostly in the first, uh, well, 4 through 9 And then there's just a little epilogue, a little tagline toward the very end of those last four verses today from Peter. Have you happened to notice, as I have, that there are a lot of really strange holidays these days? A whole lot more than I grew up knowing about. I mean, we knew about Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving when I was a kid, but man, you look at it, it's a good thing we have social media, because now we're up on all these holidays. Now we can know when there's something coming up. For example, I missed it. Shiver me timbers, I missed Talk Like a Pirate Day last month. I was so busy catching up from sabbatical and getting back into the groove that I forgot I was supposed to talk like a pirate on September 19th. However, not to leave that one undone, I do have a pirate joke for you. Why don't pirates take a shower before they walk the plank? Uh, Because they have bad hygiene. Good answer, not the one I was looking for. The reason that pirates don't take a shower before they walk the plank is because they're just going to wash up on shore a little bit later. (laughs) And did you know, thanks to social media, I am now up on these holidays. My oldest, my firstborn, was born on November 6th, and that just happens to be also National Saxophone Day. Is that cool or what? Now, because we're not going to actually be able to celebrate together as a church on National Saxophone Day... I'm going to uh, give you a sample of what good saxophones can sound like so that we'll have a little bit of a celebration early, just a little bit of an early celebration. So here it is. Those are saxophones playing Bach, Bach fugue. So saxophones can be cool, especially if they're jazzy, and especially if they look like that. But 10th of January is going to be Peculiar People Day. Aren't you glad to know that? I didn't know that there was a Peculiar People Day until I read it from another pastor that wrote about it. He's in New Jersey somewhere. And I thought, finally, there's a day that I can really grasp. Uh, I was constantly telling my kids as they were growing up, because they would constantly tell their dad, Dad, 
you are so strange. And I would say, thank you. I've worked hard to become so. And so I think that they could probably celebrate Peculiar Person Day with me. I have wanted to know, though, is there a nomination and election process involved in who can become a peculiar person? Or I, I suspect that the card companies would not mind if you bought a card and sent it to somebody just because you thought that they fit that category. So Peculiar People Day. It's good to know that we have one of those because it's biblical. We're supposed to be peculiar. It says so in the King James Version of 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Isn't that good to know? Now, that was the King James Version, which was translated from the Latin Vulgate. So there was a Latin word that the word peculiar came from. You know what that word was? It's the Latin picus. And all of you know what picus means, right? It means flock. It means that you are one of God's chosen possessions because you belong in his flock. So it actually doesn't mean peculiar in the way that we normally would think of as being peculiar. And yet, because we are a part of one of his chosen flock, the world looks at us as though we are peculiar. So it kind of fits both ways. So if you want to be peculiar, you just raise your freak flag and fly it. But you should know that when we're talking about being a peculiar people, we're talking about being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people that are being built like living stones into a building to house him in which he dwells. Let me back up and catch that. In the NIV, it says God's special possession. And I think that's a little bit more accurate translation rather than a peculiar people because we're looking at today's specific kind of thing. Now, in the Greek... In this same translation, we're looking at parapoesis. So you can be the first at the next party you go to to say, did you know what parapoesis is? Plus, you can tell them the good pirate joke. Parapoesis, which means a treasured personal possession. So not only are we a member of God's own flock, we're a treasured personal possession, something that is treasured above all else. And so isn't that good to know that if we're supposed to be a peculiar person or peculiar people, it's because of what God thinks about us. That's where this comes from. You should know that we are supposed to be nonconformists. Denny, you're right up your alley. It's okay for you to be a nonconformist. You fit. You're a peculiar person, and God loves you for that. <laughs> We're supposed to be nonconformists. The people that Peter was writing to, as we talked about, they'd been scattered up through Asia Minor into what we think of as northern Turkey. They were living in a place where they just didn't feel like they really fit in because they didn't. Not only did they not fit in because they were culturally a little bit different. Joy and I found that we were culturally different in Scotland for the two months we were there. We were two nations separated by a common language. They would use some things. Jack found out that a trolley is actually what we put groceries in and we push it around the grocery store. They would say, oh, would you fetch me a trolley? And that's what they meant by that. Uh, and then when Jack pointed out what a real trolley was, it was like a trolley car. They says, oh, no, no, that's a tram. So even though we used a lot of the same language, we felt like we were separated by a common language. Same thing was true for these people that went to Asia Minor. They probably felt a little bit left-footed, a little out of place anyway, but they were really out of place because of their religious beliefs. When you start talking about this guy who claims to have risen from the dead around people who don't get that, they're liable to look at you like, okay, what have you been taking? This just sounds like a little delusional talk that you're giving us here. So they were nonconformists. They didn't fit with the people that they were living around. 
They'd been rejected just as Christ had been rejected. I think it's good for us to know that if we're going to follow a rejected leader, at least we're following one that we're in good company with. It's okay to follow a rejected leader because he was also exalted above all the other leaders so that at his name every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. I'd rather be associated with that rejected leader than a lot of other rejected leaders. Verse 4, 1 Peter, as you come to him, the living stone, referring probably because of his resurrection to the life that he brings to everybody who comes into him, they can have a resurrection because of his resurrection. That's why death doesn't carry the same sting for us as believers as for people who are hopeless and without Christ because of that resurrection. He's a living stone. They were rejected by humans. He was rejected by humans, but chosen by God and therefore precious to him. We're in good company. Did you ever experience, back when you were probably junior high or high school, that there were different cliques or groups that kind of had their own identity? When I was uh, in high school, it was a huge high school in Phoenix, Arizona. There were 5,000 students in this high school. And I, some of you homeschoolers, I know that's hard for you to imagine being in a school with 5,000 people. That's how many people went to my school. We had to have split shifts so that some of us would have an early morning shift, and they get there at 6.30. I was the late shift, so I didn't have to go to school until 12.30. Woo. But then we would have common classes in the middle, like bands, so that people from both shifts would go to that one, and then we'd go. So I didn't get home until 5.30 or 6 o'clock. But that's how big it was. And there were all these different cliques. There were the sort of the math nerds. Uh, some people just call them geeks or whatever, you know, the science and math people. Oh, boy, I tell you what. They were really smart, but they were kind of ostracized by the geeks, or, or by the, the band geeks, and by the, the jocks. And then, of course, you get the athletes, they would hang out together. And then I kind of started splitting the best of both worlds, because I was in the music, nerdy musicians camp for a while, until somebody dared me to try out for a play, because they heard me making fun of some of the people that were trying out in the back row. And he goes, why don't you try it? Let's see how easy it is. And I said, okay, I'll show you. So I went up and grabbed a part and read for it, and I got a part. So kind of by accident, I became the drama nerd. And so there were all these different kind of groups and camps. And if you didn't fit in one group, you had to sort of hang with the other people. It was difficult for you to be associated with a bunch of different groups, even though some people tried. But here's the thing. If you're going to be in good company, I'd rather be in that one group that's going to be in eternity with the ostracized leader who has made a place for me for the rest of eternity than with any of the other groups that exist on the planet today. And here's the other thing. We're all going to be rejected by some group or other. You've already experienced it. If you've been through high school, you've already experienced this. You probably don't fit with certain people groups, and you do fit better with some other groups. That's just the way of the world. So if we're thinking about that in a cosmic sense, isn't it good to know that we can be the peculiar people? We can be the Christian geeks or the Christian nerds or whatever they want to label us as. It was actually kind of a derogatory term for them to be called Christians in the first place. When they were first called Christians, they were saying it with a sneer, like, ah, those little Christs, those Christians. <laughs> it's a good thing to be a Christian. And if you're going to be ostracized, I'd rather be ostracized for being a Christian, a little Christ, than to be associated with some of those other groups. Peter tells us in this passage, in this letter to these ostracized believers, that believers are like a bunch of little stones. Isn't it interesting that he chose this analogy too? Because guess what his name meant? 
A little stone. That's exactly right. Isn't that cool? He's starting to picture himself as a part of what's going on, and he's using even himself along with a lot of other believers as an example for what Christ is doing for these little stones. It says, you also, like living stones, doesn't mean that you're the main living stone like Jesus is, but you're like him. You're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool to know that we're all being constructed by him into a dwelling place for God where spiritual sacrifices are being offered to him? Not literal sacrifices. We don't have, aren't you glad we don't have to do the literal sacrifices anymore? Yeah. We don't have to because Christ was the literal once and for all time sacrifice, the unblemished lamb. He did it one and done. No more that has to be done after that. This is an actual castle that uh, Callie and Joy and I visited when we were on our sabbatical. It was one of the first ones. It was the, the first one that you got to see, Callie. And uh, we would pronounce it Borthwick because we're American. They would say Borthwick. It's the Borthwick Castle. And Borthwick was an interesting guy. He had an incredible backstory. And you can't see it because it's on the opposite side of that. There's a big hole in the side of that thing that was made by a cannon. But the walls were so thick that it took out 18 inches of wall. And there's still another 18 or 20 inches of stone. So it never did actually bust all the way through. So it's a very strong house. I'd like to live in a house like that. What we discovered when we were over there, there are all these ancient buildings. Some of them a 1,000 years old. And they would go out of style because their leader would get deposed. Or somebody would come in and kick them out. And then the new leader would come in, and then they would start just destroying those beautiful old buildings like that. But you know what happened? They'd have the rubble that would be lying around these destroyed buildings. Oh, that'd be like, oh, it's building material. I don't even have to go to the quarry, and I don't have to cut it. It's already cut into place. Let's borrow from this one. So they would take the stones from one building, cart it over to another place, sometimes on the very same piece of property, and then they would build up these magnificent structures that later on would be newer to us, but still look pretty ancient. And they were gorgeous, amazing buildings. You see that a lot in the ancient world where Peter was writing to. You can drive right on through where Ephesus is and up into northern Turkey and some other places. You would see places like that. There'd be rubble and there would be a building that would be newer. It was only 600 years old instead of 1,000 or 1,200 years old. Here's my point. He's saying there's something that's been destroyed that needs to be rebuilt. And he says, and you're like that. God is going to completely destroy you when you find out just how sinful you really are before you finally take that step of repentance and say, God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. I've tried really hard and it doesn't work. I can't be morally upright. And so you're just destroyed. He demolishes that old house. And then like living stones, he's starting to piece us together. And he's building us up together with other believers into this wonderful edifice, this building. And he's the one who resides in that building. He says... And he's quoting from Isaiah here to continue to make his point. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. You know how important the cornerstone was in those buildings back then? You who are in building industry, you know how important it is to get all of the figures just right. Everything has got to be level and plumb and square. And when you set that cornerstone in place, if you're doing a, a contemporary cornerstone, everything takes its guide off of that. You'll know if you're okay by whether you're guiding off that cornerstone. And if you're also looking at the kind of piece that they were using in archways, that stone would be just that final keystone, the one that's set in place that holds the whole arch together. And if you remove that stone, everything falls apart. That's what Jesus is. 
He says, that's what Jesus has done for us. He's the cornerstone. We guide off of him. He's the keystone. He's the one that holds everything in place. And if you take him out, everything crumbles. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Even though there are other groups of people who will point their fingers at us and call us names and consider, considering us the weird ones, and say, thank you, I've worked hard to become so. I'm a very unusual person. The stone the builders rejected, Peter says, has become the cornerstone. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Interesting how he uses both those things. For one group of people, the people who say, yes, I'm willing to be identified with this ostracized leader, this rejected leader. I want to be identified with him, even though there are other people who think that we are so strange. But there are other people, that same stone becomes a stumbling block. For us, we're building a foundation on him. For others, phew, they're tripping over him. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. I think it was Tom Harkway in his message to you guys in August, when he was quoting from Ravi Zacharias in one of his books about the many things that the world tries to throw at us that would desensitize us to the things of God, that would create distortions. He used his sunglasses that got messed up from a deck project he had going on. And remember that? And he, and he said, I dropped these glasses and I thought they were okay until I put them on and I couldn't see it because they were all distorted. And he said, that's what happens with the world. They try to make us distorted so that we'll disobey the message for which we were destined for. We're destined for that. Uh, we watched uh, in our family a very interesting, I don't know how we stumbled on it either. We were just searching for something on YouTube on TV the other night. And there was this really intriguing testimony by a young lady who had come out of a cult. It was a cult that's quite well known. It was a cult that even has the name Jesus Christ in the name of their organization. It's a fairly massive religious organization. But she'd come away from that and the several months of real struggle that took place there was because her husband had started sort of secretly exploring things about Jesus Christ. Now, he had been really deep into this cult and was listening to all their teachings. They would go to church at this cult every Sunday. They would listen to these doctrinal teachings, but Jesus was never mentioned. It was doctrinal teaching that was indoctrinating them to their man-made cult experience. And she said, when my husband started finally leaving, leaving some material around, I found this testimony from somebody that was on, I think, a cassette tape or something like that. And I looked at that. She said, it was like finding porn in my house. I couldn't believe he would be exploring Christianity of all things. Ah, I threw the tape across the room. I was so angry and I shouted at him and we had this big fight and things got really bad in that family for a while because he was leaving this cult bit by bit, being drawn away by what she thought was a cult because that's the way she thought about Christianity. What was happening was that he was starting to find that he could build a life on the teachings of Jesus Christ because Jesus was becoming his cornerstone, the foundation. She was tripping over Jesus, and every time he would bring Jesus up, she would trip over him and get angry and start trying to defend something that was actually just a cult and was man-made. The funny thing was, funny, not funny at the time because it was very strenuous and difficult, as you can imagine, the funny thing, though, eventually was that she started listening to some of the things he was bringing home. She would put in a VHS tape and watch a testimony of somebody and start getting some solid biblical teaching. And she was starting to wrestle with herself because she could recognize that 
a little bit as truth, but that caused her to start questioning what she had been receiving as truth in her cult. And she thought, man, where do I fit on all this stuff? She was so conflicted and confused until finally she realized that she was starting to defend Jesus and was questioning the teachers in her cult. It was a big aha moment. And then when she called her sister and started actually talking as though maybe she was starting to explore these things about Christianity as well, her sister was quite surprised, as you might imagine. And that started another ripple effect with the rest of her family as well, because for her to leave that cult was a big deal. You didn't do that. And yet she was discovering that she was just empty spiritually. Her husband, who had really come to faith in Christ by that time, had said, I think God is going to let you get so dry that you're thirsty for him. And he said, just go back. Go back and listen to what they're teaching you on Sundays. They've got the name Jesus Christ in the name of this cult. Listen to how many times they mention Jesus in their teaching. You just look for it. She thought, well, I know they've got to be teaching about him. So she went back and she started listening for how many times they actually mentioned the word Jesus in the teaching. And she came home, she goes, they didn't mention his name once. Not once. They can have a set of documents that look good to the world, but what they were getting was indoctrination that had nothing to do with Christ as the chief cornerstone. So she finally saw the light And she's now traveling almost full-time, giving her testimony at different churches to show that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He's the only way. We living stones who are being built into a house are also collectively a priesthood. It was funny because she started acting almost like a priest to her sister, sharing these things about Jesus that she was learning. And her family was like, what have you become? Are you like a priest or a preacher or something? How come you keep talking about this Jesus all the time? Well, it's because she was actually a member of a priesthood. Not the kind of priesthood that her cult was teaching them to become like. It was the royal, holy priesthood that Peter's talking to us about, that you and I, if we're believers in Jesus, guess what? You're a member. You're already a part of this royal priesthood. We have to figure that out. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Who's the king from which we're descendant? That'd be Jesus. If we're joint heirs with him, then clearly... That's part of our inheritance. We're part of that priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, these peculiar people. The roles of a priest, what were they? Well, first of all, there was the mediation role. A priest was supposed to speak uh, on behalf of the people to God. And so he would come and he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would say some things to God. So basically he was the spokesperson, but he could also do the reverse. He could come from God, kind of like what Moses did for Mount Sinai. He would come from God with a message from him like the prophets would do, and then they would say a word from God to the people. So there was a little of that mediation role going on for the priests. He was the in-between person. He was the middleman. And if you wanted to get your sins forgiven, you could go and confess to the priest, and then the, the priest would go and handle that. He said, okay, thanks, I got it. I'm going to go in and take care of that. Uh, there's a major denomination today where they actually still have confessions where people do that to the priest rather than speaking directly to Jesus. That was one of the roles of the priest. The other was to offer sacrifices. And like I said, we don't have to offer the actual animal sacrifices anymore. Aren't we glad? That was the role of a priest. So how are we similar to and how are we different from the priests? Well, we can actually point people to the one who is the ultimate priest, the high priest. Jesus took the role which superseded everything that had been done prior to that when he became the ultimate sacrifice for us. He's both priest, he's king, He is the sacrifice. He is all of that which was pointed to us in the Old Testament through the prophecies. He is every one of those things. So now the role of our 
Our priesthood is simply to proclaim the goodness so that other people can be pointed to him. Look what this says, 1 Peter 2.9, the second half of that verse. You are a peculiar people so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's what this lady who'd come out of that cult was doing. She was simply sharing the good news about something that had changed her life. If something has transformed you, you're going to want to tell people about that, and that's what she was doing for her family. That's what we can do as well. We do that on Sunday mornings. We kind of have the home field advantage, but it's nice to be able to come and proclaim the goodness of the one who called us out of this darkness and into his wonderful light. Hey, remember, I have to back up about three uh, weeks ago. It was the second installment of this particular series, and I talked about that terrible accident that took place on 94, just west of 23. The car was on fire. Our friend Zach, the state policeman, broke a window and hauled those three children to safety. Now, fast forward 20 years from that accident, and let's say that one of those young ladies that was in the back seat grew up, and she's starting to tell people in interviews all about what happened. She said, from my perspective, all I knew is I was in a very dark place, and then I woke up, and then things were smelling hot and smoky, and then this hand reached in from out of nowhere, from above me, and pulled me to safety, and I'm alive today. I would not be alive today had that not happened. How is that going to make us think about that fellow who pulled her to safety? What's our opinion of him going to be like? It's going to be a good opinion. I would say, what a courageous guy that was. What a wonderful policeman to do that kind of thing for them. So if we're talking to people about this God who reached down and saved us out of darkness and pulled us into light, who got us from out of the walking dead because I was walking around dead in my sins, and now I'm alive in him, if I'm sharing that good news, I'm being a priest. I'm a part of the royal priesthood because that's what I'm doing. I'm simply proclaiming the praises of the one who called me out of darkness. I remember being in college my first year. It was a scary year. I'd lived with my parents the whole time until I moved. It was a state school in uh, Arizona, and I was living in a dorm with people I hadn't met yet, and it was just a scary time. And I thought, I need to find some like-minded people to hang around with. I need to make some friends. Where can I find that? And I heard the words of my parents echoing. There are Christian organizations on campus. You should find a Christian organization. Maybe you should go hang out with these people in a Christian organization. And so I finally went to a Christian organization. It was a campus crusade for Christ. And you know what got me there? I got a notice in my mailbox. It was one of the first pieces of mail I got inviting me to their first meeting. And there was free food. Food and college students go together. And so I showed up. And what I discovered was there were people who are just like me who are kind of looking around thinking, I wonder if there are people on this campus who are like I am. We are a peculiar people, and I'm not sure if we belong on this campus or not, but we belonged together. And I discovered really quickly that they helped keep me solid in my faith because I was hanging out with people that wanted to proclaim the goodness. They were singing songs that I hadn't sung yet, but they sang it with all their hearts. And I thought, I want to be like that. I want to learn these songs. That was a part of how we were proclaiming God's goodness. And the more I hung out with people like that, the more solid I felt in my faith so that I could be a little bit of this salt and light on a campus that was very secular at the time. That's what happens to all of us who are peculiar people. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you didn't belong, now you belong. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
He's trying to remind them. Pastor Mike had talked about the need for spiritual growth in his talk to you all in uh, August. And one of the things that he said was, Peter kept saying, I'm reminding you of these things. I want to bring back to your memory the things that you already know. And that's what he's already starting to do here, even in his first part of this letter. He says, now you have received mercy. Remember that? Do you remember the time when you received mercy and you felt that weight lifted off your shoulders? Remember that wonderful feeling of surrender? You have, don't forget that. Cling to that. Hang on to that, folks. You are now people who have received mercy. And then that little addendum at the end when he says in that last four verses is basically, so live like it. Live like it. Don't slide back into worldly kinds of behaviors. Keep hanging around with other people so that you can keep those glasses those filters clean so you can see through the filter of God's word and understand that you have an eternal perspective that gives your life meaning and purpose. Here's the gospel awareness that happens to every single one of us. We find out that moment, that terrible moment when we realize, I can't do this on my own strength. I am an awful sinner. I'm more sinful than I ever dreamed. When we come in contact with a holy God, we realize I am so much more sinful than I ever thought possible. But the gospel is the good news, which says, and you're more loved than you ever dared dream. That's the gospel. I heard very recently a good old country pastor, J. Vernon McGee, and I heard him recently preaching. It was on uh, some sort of a radio program that they've continued to propagate because he's been in heaven for a long time now. And he said, my friends, because he's got that wonderful southern accent, he says, my friends, I want to be compassionate when I tell you this, but I'm telling you, God's not in the Reformation business. He's not trying to get you to come, become a little better at being moral. That won't work. If you're just going to be a little bit better, I'd just say, just eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you're going to die in your sins. He said, but God is in the business of completely remaking us into a brand new creature in Jesus Christ. He doesn't want us to have a self-help group. He needs you to die to self and be resurrected as a new life in Jesus Christ. Because there's a lot of sermons being preached today that are kind of self-help sermons, let me tell you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we can't do it. We die to self. God resurrects us so that we can have an eternal resurrection. We need him for all of that. That's the gospel message. And that's what resonates in my spirit because the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us and says, yes. Yes, you need to accept that because the self-help gospel is no gospel at all. It's a die to self and be raised as a new creature in Christ gospel. That's the real gospel. So he says, you've received mercy, so live like it. Live as peculiar people. If people want to say, how come you won't go out for drinks with the rest of us on this Friday night after this work experience? And for you to be honest and say, you know, I have to get up early on Saturday because I have to study for something that I'm doing in our church. And I just don't really enjoy that kind of stuff. And it's not to slam you guys, but I just don't, that's just not my scene anymore. It's okay to be peculiar. It's okay for you to get away from some of the behaviors that other people might have thought about. I, I heard a true story. I think we're mostly adults here and some of you are old enough children to understand. There was a man on a business trip I heard this uh, true story just this week from another pastor, man on a business trip from his church, and uh, he was in a very, could be compromising situation because there was a woman on his team that came into his motel room and basically offered to do whatever he might want to do while they were on this business trip together. 
And he was scared to death because he thought that would absolutely, completely ruin my marriage, my Christian witness, and everything else. I couldn't live with myself. And so he politely but kindly and and firmly rejected her offer. And that same person came to him several weeks later and said, can we talk for a second? He's thinking, oh no, here we go again. But what she said was, thank you for being the first man who's ever refused what I've offered. You're the only one who's ever refused that. She said, I I have to confess to you that I feel terrible for doing to you what I did. I was abused as a child, and I have sought love in all the wrong ways. And for somebody to see me and care for me more than just caring about my body was a big deal. Wow. He was a peculiar person compared to what the world would think of. And it was okay. And in fact, God used it in a big way to show her that she needed something that he had. What was that? He had Jesus Christ in his life. It became a testimony. So by saying no to the world and saying yes to the things that God has for us allows him the freedom to start drawing people, not to us, but to the Christ in us. Oh, I want people to be able to say sometime down the road when it's my turn to go to heaven, I want them to be able to say, I was drawn to the Christ in that guy. It's not going to be about me. I want it to be about Christ in me. Let's pray together. Father, this whole concept of being living stones and being shaped together to be a dwelling for you, kind of hard to grasp at times. And yet it's such a great picture. And you wouldn't have inspired Peter to write that in his letters and for that to be passed along into what we know now as our Bible if it wasn't important. So I'm praying that you'll bring these things in a personal way into each of our minds and hearts today so that we can remember who we are, like Peter's been reminding us. Remember who you are. You're people who have received mercy. You are a saved people. You've been rescued. So live like it. And I pray that all of us will live like it, not out of a sense of earning what you have to give us as a reward, but simply because we are already rescued, we're already saved, and therefore we're just overflowing with gratitude. And may other people see that as we lift high the praises of the one who's brought us out of darkness into light so that they will be drawn to that light because they see Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray.